Ciao e benvenuti. Welcome back to Kimberly's Italy. This is the first of two episodes on the city of Firenze. That is the proper Italian pronunciation of Florence. It is an incredibly beautiful city. It has a car-free historic center which allows you to see everything by simply walking. The art and architecture make it one of the most visited cities in the world. But I will suggest this from the get-go. If you can go off-season, do so. Yes, you'll enjoy it that much more. Once again, I'm Kimberly Holcomb. I'm here with my podcast producer and partner in life, Tommaso. Ciao, bella donna. Ciao. Sei pronto, Tommaso? Eh, sì, sono pronto. <laughs> he's learning. I just asked him if he's ready. Okay, he is. Let's go. We attack. <laughs> Attacko. <laughs> okay. We can't really start talking about Firenze without mentioning some of its history because there is so much of it. After the fall of the Roman Empire around 500 AD, Italy had this quote-unquote perceived death, a death of culture, which they named the Dark Ages, 900 very long years of the decline of art, science, philosophy, and architecture, even political systems. That was the early Middle Ages, and not all scholars agree to the length or the degree of the Dark Ages and whose fault it was exactly. <laughs> it was pretty bad. So there's a lot of finger pointing that goes way back then. And what we do know the is Papa. the church ruled most everything that people did, which included uh, what kind of painting, what kind of uh, philosophy was espoused. Pretty much everything. Just about. So finally, in the 14th century, the Renaissance took shape in Italy and the Florentines claimed it specifically started right there in Firenze. Science, art, and economic revival that lasted two centuries in Italy and spread out amongst all of Europe eventually. And that is also when Cosimo Medici began to rule Firenze. He turned it into an economic powerhouse. And then everything flourished. Art got free. So with this newfound freedom, painters like Raphael started painting naked cherubs, naked women, all kinds of realism, things, fleshy. Things got good. Yes. And then in 1440, this piece alone really changed things. Donatello was commissioned to sculpt a freestanding and buck-naked Davide, David, the warrior. Davide is the correct pronunciation, in bronze and it was supposed to top the buttresses of the Duomo, one of the buttresses. Yeah. It never made it there, but it changed things. It was a game changer. Hmm. Naked Davide, well, he had hat and boots on, but other than that. <laughs> <That's it. laughs> and, and Donatello, his real name was Donato di Nicolo di Betto Bardi. I just want to throw out these full names because they're amazing. He was only in his early 20s, and he sculpted this bronze piece that literally changed the trajectory of the Renaissance art. Hmm. In his 20s. In his 20s. What do we do in our 20s? Oh, uh, you know, Andy Warhol. and <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Donatello's David led the way to Michelangelo's much larger Davide, which was sculpted from a single block of marble. Any of you that took art history classes... 
once he started carving that, everyone claimed the marble piece wasn't great. Donatello had already been working on it for years. So he immersed it in water and slowly brought it up and started sculpting. He immersed it in water. Or emerged. <laughs> As we create the English language again. <laughs> Michelangelo immersed the solid block of white marble in water and started carving from there. That's just a little fun fact. A solid block of marble. It's, it's a little bit of pressure. Mm-hmm. There's no, no kidding. One wrong crack. Yeah, there's no real eraser to do that. <laughs> so this Davide by Michelangelo was presented at Palazzo Vecchio in 1504. So 64 years after Donatello's small bronze Davide. And it immediately became the pride of the Florentines. And why wouldn't it? This His Davide was 17 feet tall and weighs over 12,000 pounds. And it took 40 men and four days to move it from Michelangelo's studio to Palazzo Vecchio, which was under a mile. But imagine uh, wheels at that time were probably wood, round wood well, they or prob- stone. They, they probably rolled it on rollers. There's no rollers. wheel because they'd have to have an axle. Okay, and fine. And an axle would probably break. So they okay. have rollers okay. on the ground. On over stone. Yeah. Okay, not easy. A couple of dudes in the back moving the rollers forward. Yikes. That's the bad, that, that, that'd be the bad job. Yes, it would. Good but job anyway. Is, good job is drinking coffee and directing. <laughs> so Michelangelo's David was finally out. The Florentines were proud as could be. Oh, and by the way, since we're doing the full name, I want to tell you everyone's full name because they're incredible. Michelangelo di Lodovico Bonarroti Simoni. That's his full name. And you know, the other day I was talking to a travel agent because she booked a flight for me to Italy in um, this coming October and she needed my passport info. So she's like, passport number, gave it to her. She goes, full name, pass on your passport. I said, Kimberly Holcomb. She goes, no middle name. It's like, no. So imagine this, Michelangelo di Lodovico, Lodovico Bonarroti Simoni. See, 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 stop. Spell that for me, please. <laughs> when you're, right, right, right. When you're running with a feather and a quill way back then. <laughs> anyway, the Florentines became so proud of their city due to the Renaissance, and they are to this day. As a matter of fact, we spoke to our friends yesterday, a couple named Frank and Lolita, who've had an apartment there for 20 years. And that is exactly what Lolita said that the Florentines are such proud people and they work hard to keep the city's charm despite the amount of tourists daily. Which is quite a bit. Right. They've had an apartment for 20 years and, and were visiting there beforehand, so they know it well. And she keeps emphasizing that the Florentines want to maintain its cultural significance and remind everyone of what their city has achieved throughout history and their immense civic pride. Well, they're also, they're very proud of themselves, the Tuscans. As I, they should be. Yes. So one story, when I met uh, an Italian acquaintance of mine way back when in the, I think it was the late 90s, um, we were sailing in Saint-Tropez. And there's another story about sailing. Here it goes Tommaso again. But anyway, the long and the short of it is there was a gentleman on the boat named Carlo, and we were walking out of the boat from our villa one day, to do during the regatta, and I asked him about being Italian, and he looked at me as if I would just insulted him. <laughs> and he said, "I'm not Italian." And he wrapped his chest. I'm Tuscan. 
And I was like, whoa, okay. And then he went on a little saltier version of some of the other Sono areas. Toscano. Sono Toscano. But he went on a little saltier version. But, you know, he made it very, very clear to me that he viewed himself as Tuscan. That's and awesome. not necessarily Italian. That's awesome. Well, I want to tell you about a person's first time, even Tommaso's first time, my first time in Firenze. Whether you arrive by a car or a train, you can see the top of the dome of the Duomo and maybe a little bit of the part, the top part of the Duomo itself. But that's about it because most of the buildings are the same height. Yes. Uh, One second. That proves that zoning works. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> for centuries. <laughs> for centuries. Right. Good yeah. point. So anyway, the dome is normally visible. No matter how you're walking around, you can see the dome. And that's how in this car-free city center, you walk through these ancient narrow streets. You keep looking for the dome because your first thing you're going to do in Firenze on your first day is go see the Duomo. Everyone does. And it's just the best. Take a right, you take a left, and then you think the dome's closer, and then all of a sudden you turn the corner, and bang, there it is. And I remember my first time I saw it, I was in college, and I turned the corner, and I was just completely gobsmacked by it. It's a funny word, but it seems appropriate. And Tommaso, you had the exact same expression. You just basically stopped in your tracks. Well, as a student of architecture in college and everything, I always wanted to go there. And when we went there, the it, it was like going to the pinnacle and going to a place that you sat in our history class and twiddled your thumbs exactly. and tried to get over. And in those days, in our art history classes, we had slideshow presentations. Slideshow. Right. And Jansen's art history. <laughs> right. Which I still have as a, as a- Me too. My favorite book. As a doorway. There's a big difference between looking at it on a screen in art history class than seeing it in real life. So the Duomo's full name is Santa Maria del Fiore, which means St. Mary of the Flowers. It is made of white marble from Carrara that we've mentioned before, and a green stone from Prato, which is close by Firenze, and a red limestone, a red-colored limestone from a nearby quarry. And they say that this red limestone, because I thought, there's no red marble. Are there red stones? There are. We looked it up. They say this limestone dates back 190 million years. It's a little bit of history. Mm-hmm. Slide back <laughs> earlier than the Dark Ages. Right. Anyway, the three colors of the Duomo are the three colors of the Italian flag. So once your breath is taken away for the first time, you realize that why it's so magnificent is because of its graphic ornateness. There's so many different designs with these three colors, like rectangles, diamond shapes, checked. It's visually busier than color-wise and graphic-wise than, say, the Duomo in Milano, which has those hundreds and hundreds of freestanding sculptures. But But they're all pretty much monochromatic. Exactly. It's all that off-white, pinky marble. Same with St. Peter's in Rome. So this Duomo, outside of the one in Orvieto, which is black and white horizontal, that's pretty graphic, too. This uh, Santa Maria del Fiore Duomo in Firenze literally is one of a kind. And this is a very important statement. This Duomo is the most significant architectural achievement of the entire Renaissance. And every scholar, everyone can agree on that. It was started in 1400 and built by Filippo Brunelleschi. And here we go with art history again. But for any of you that studied art history... 
Brunelleschi was the central player. He first put perspective into drawing and then incorporated that into the build. And he alone, you would know this from architecture, he alone is responsible for how construction is done today. He applied artistic and scientific engineering principles and most importantly, the separation of designer and builder. And that remains to this day. So let me just square back to college for one second. In college, we had to learn how to draft 30 arches. Oh, geez. <laughs> because I was in I was in theater school for learning how to design set design and lighting design and sound design. In set design with Professor Don Beeman, we were required to learn how to draft arches. The spring lines of a Gothic arch, I mean, these are complicated things. Sitting there today with a T-square, at, well, the, a the, computer. in that day and age, a T-square <laughs> and triangles, but today... Computer-aided design. Computer-aided design. It wouldn't be that horrible. Maybe it would, but I don't know because I haven't used CAD in ages. But the simple fact is we sat there and had to draw these arches. And trying to figure out these arches way a long time ago. And that's just an arch you're talking about that holds up a building, but it's not a dome. Well, yeah. well, Which is harder, right? right? Harder. We we never had to do the dome, just the arches. (laughs) So some arches have multiple spring lines, and it was very complicated. And imagine this dome. Imagine way back when. And guess what? This cathedral, when it was built, was the largest at the time in all of Europe, and the dome itself took 150 years to complete, and to this day is the largest brick dome ever constructed. Spring lines are not, cat or not, it's still standing. And that is 471 years ago. Do you think they finished this? Do you think Brunelleschi passed on some good drawings to the guys go, going ahead? No. Did no? you did you know this? No. Why'd you ask me that? I, okay. I didn't know. Because this know is that. super interesting. Uh, he deliberately, they suppose, never left a single drawing of the cathedral itself and more specifically of the dome. And he figured out how to build, quote unquote, machines to help construct this dome. And he never left anything behind. I think he wanted it to be, he wanted to be the epitome of forward thinking and who could possibly copy him. So guess who stepped in years and years later? Leonardo da Vinci Ah. went and studied this dome, got to the top somehow, figured it out, and he made drawings of how Brunelleschi most likely had this dome built. And he left all these drawings for everyone to see. He took away Brunelleschi's secret. Leave it to Leo. I bet he was jonesing for a drone. Yeah, right. <laughs> he probably thought of that. Leonardo da Vinci, da Vinci thought of airplanes. He probably thought of a drone. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, inside of the church is incredible. That's a whole nother episode or two. But you can climb to the top of the bell tower for a view of the city. But personally, I think if you go to the top of Palazzo Vecchio, which we'll speak about later, you have a better view of the Duomo itself from afar and all of the city behind it. These days, you have to buy tickets for just about everything to get in everywhere at a specific time. And I'll give you all that information at the end of our episodes on Firenze. And right across from the Duomo is the Baptistry. And they built that there conveniently because in those days you had to be baptized before you could go into the church. So another Florentine artist named Lorenzo Ghiberti created the marvel, which were the baptistry doors. 
10 panels of bronze that he carved in a deep relief, almost 3D-ish. And they were all the stories from the Old Testament, Adam and Eve and all that. Anyway, when Michelangelo saw these doors completed and hung on the baptistry for the first time, apparently he just stood there and said, "Ah, these doors are worthy of entering paradise. So they became the gates of paradise. Mick's nickname has stuck all these years. Michelangelo, (laughs) that is. The original doors are in the museum across the street from the Duomo, along with a, a lot of other amazing items that went into building the Duomo or are part of it that they preserve there. And funny enough, it's across the street from the Duomo with this one little sign over the top says Museo, just like museum, nothing more, but you should definitely go in because there you see the originals. The replicas hanging on the baptistry itself are stunning as well, but the real McCoy across the street. (laughs) (laughs) So Michelangelo, just chat about him for another second. He was born in Florence, well, a village of Florence called Caprese, just like world's best salad. And the first time I took Tommaso, we stayed in the same place I always stay, an old convent that has been converted into a small hotel by one of the great, great, great nieces of one of the nuns. And it was on Via Ghibellina. And the main reason I love staying in this old convent, not only for the sweet family that ran it, but because it was right down the street from Casa Buonarroti. Yep, Michelangelo's house. I mean, how cool is that? Well, it's very cool. Right? I remember walking around there and, and well, just a p- little perspective on what it's like to walk around at night and you're thinking about it can be very quiet. It's it's totally quiet. It's no cars. No cars. And it's, you're just, let's just say in the off season, you're sort of bundled up. You've got a scarf on and you're walking the same streets that Da Vinci and Michelangelo walked centuries ago and and to really think about that and just to absorb it and walk around and just, you know, not walking and listening to music or anything, just thinking and hearing your footsteps. Thinking who walked before you. Who walked before you. But every time we were kind of goofy, every time we'd walk by his house two or three times a day, we'd touch Ciao, Mick. You will. (laughs) (laughs) I always touch everything knowing how old it is. Anyway, Casa Buonarroti is now a museum where you can see everything that his nephew, he never had children, and his nephew Leonardo and Leonardo's son, whom he named Michelangelo, just to carry on the family name. So his uh, Michelangelo's nephew and his great nephew saved all of his works, his drawings, his contracts, commissions, everything, and they're in this house. And just to walk through this entire building and know that Michelangelo and his family were there and lived there at some point, it was just the coolest. Actually, Michelangelo lived in Rome for the last 30 years of his life because he got mad at Florentine, you know, somebody. And so he lived in Rome for the last 30 years of his life. But you know that he went and visited Casa Buonarroti to see his nephew, who is very close to. So back to Tommaso's first day. He sees the Duomo, we go in the baptistry, and then we walked over to Santa Croce, Piazza Santa Croce, which is my favorite piazza in all of Firenze. It's a big rectangular piazza with several restaurants, ristorante and coffee bars. It's normally very crowded because it's beautiful, and there's the famous Santa Croce church there. But we were there in late October, so it was totally fine. And we had one of those three-hour lunches just sitting outside looking at 
the church Santa Croce and all these medieval buildings not being rushed at all like we're accustomed to by the waiters in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know turn the table. I know we had caprese salad and some wine and pasta, of course, etc. It was lovely. And when we finally finished, Tommaso said, I'd like to walk over the Arno now, walk over the Ponte Vecchio, which you've heard about and we'll describe later. And I said, okay, but let's just first go into Santa Croce. We're right here. And you're like, he says, oh, come on. We were just in. I know you love churches, but we're just in the Duomo on the, the back church lady. For like, <laughs> the, the church, church lady. lady. <laughs> He's like, we were just in there for like four hours. Come on, let's just go to the Arno. I go, just one second. It was built in 1292. How can you not want to go in that? Just really quickly. He's like, okay. So we did. And I walked him in. I took him straight to this huge, massive marble tomb of Michelangelo. I didn't tell him who was in there first. There is Michelangelo's tomb of the same Michelangelo whose house we walked by every day, of the same person we've seen everywhere, and there's his tomb in this ancient church, Santa Croce. Then next, Galileo's tomb. And by the way, with the name thing, Galileo's last name is Galilei. Galileo Galilei. Who's that? <laughs> and then also who's buried there? Machiavelli. That's uh-huh. where we all get the term, the Machiavellian mm-hmm. concept, Machiavellian attitude. Right. Which is odd because the book he wrote, The, the Unjust- Prince. The unjustifies the means. But it was rumored that he was an atheist. So I find that very funny that he's entombed in Santa Croce. Well, you know, it was rumored, but it couldn't be confirmed at the time. I guess so. Okay. So anyway, pretty famous uh, burial place. It's like the Florentine Boys Club. Let me let me bring up another guy uh, recently. A another, Florentine? Another Florentine. He was a 20th century Florentine. But recently, the Tour de France was run. And as we watched the Tour de France every night, some people in the household weren't all mm-hmm. that into it. The Tour de France bike race recap yes. every night for yes. the last three weeks. <laughs> no, no, no. There were two rest days. Anyway, <laughs> so those of you who know me know I like biking. And uh, for those of you who don't, well, now you do know I like biking. Recently, I read an article because everything comes out during the tour. There's so much information coming out about a gentleman who was born in Florence in 1914, Gino Bartali. And Gino was a great racer at the time. He started out as a mechanic and he became a racer. A bike mechanic or a, just a mechanic? Just a bike mechanic. And he won the Gira di Italia Bravo. Uh, twice in uh, 1936, excuse me, 37 and 46. I have to read this from my notes. And he also won the Tour de France in 1938 and 1948. But unfortunately, World War II got in the way of his biking career. And uh, he... Still rode, he still practiced. Gino wasn't thrilled about the, the whole fascist state of, it, of Italy, Mussolini and whatnot. And he refused to dedicate his uh, 1938 toward victory to Mussolini. Oh, good for him. Yeah, right. So the church got involved and basically... Wow, over, over that? No, it's a good thing. So he was asked by the Cardinal of Florence, Archbishop Ilia Dalla Costa to join a secret network offering safe passage to Jews and other people in danger. And he didn't hesitate for a second. 
Bravo. So he was training for the tour, telling all the authorities he was training for the tour, but he was running messages that were hidden in the <gasps> handlebars and the frame of his bike. And he would because never, it was hollow. And he would never let the guards or the Germans or the fascist the Italians touch his bike. And they respected that. He said, no, it's, it's set up for speed. And they never touched it. So when he was training, he ran messages back and forth from his secret printing press and identification documents that were all forged. What a good man. And the other thing he did is it, he, at one point, built a cart for the back of the bike and towed it along. And when they were stopped by the guards, they asked what the cart was for. And he said, to add weight because I'm training. Well, what he was actually doing was hiding a couple of people, Jews in it, and transferring them to another area. They of, didn't look in the cart? They didn't look in the cart. Aww. They respected him. So, oh, because he was so famous because he, so he won famous. the Giro d'Italia. Right. So anyway, good, good man. he was. Uh, he never wanted any credit, but this is something, another one of Florence's great citizens that's not quite acknowledged. A more modern day. More modern day. His name again? Gino Bartali. Gino Bartali. Died in 2000. Well, he's not buried in Santa Croce, but he deserves to be. Yes. Galileo <laughs> and Gino. He's, he's Galileo in, Galilei. He's, he's in the Giro over there. Anyway. Just kidding. We'll definitely have to do a second episode on Firenze because there is so much to see, so much experience, so many stories. To end, we'd just like to describe the perfect day because, as I mentioned, we were talking to our friends, Frank and Lolita, yesterday. And Frank, by the way, is the man that Tommaso has sailed with all these years. So when he tells you these regatta stories, it's thanks to Frank and Lolita and the international crew. They had amazing times and that's all because Frank and Lolita's international outlook on life got those people together. A global vision. Yes. So Lolita went to Firenze initially to study painting at the Accademia di Bella Arte, where Michelangelo's Davide is. We'll talk about that next episode. And that school was founded by Cosimo Medici in 1563. How cool is that to go to art school every day? And art school. Think, it's- oh. Cosimo founded this in 1563. So she was probably there in the 70s or 80s. I don't know. Right. 70s. Anyway, when we were talking to her yesterday, I said, because she has spent more time there than Frank, a little bit more. She knows it better. She's completely fluent. One of her many languages. Yes. She's a Philippine, but she speaks about seven, including Swedish. Including Swedish. Which is really hard. (laughs) Anyway, We asked her yesterday what her idea of the perfect day is. She said, well, since our apartment is in Piazza della Signoria, right next to Palazzo Vecchio, I would walk out the door and go into Palazzo Vecchio where they show this teeny little amount of ruins from an ancient city that Firenze was built on top of. And she said, not many people know that, but it's just mind blowing to me and I love looking at it. And then she would take a walk around the entire Duomo, which I suggested as well to get the mass of it, the immensity of this incredible Duomo. And then she goes to Zecchi. Zecchi is an art store that has been housed in the same building since 1348. 1348. Wrap your head around that. Think of buying paintbrushes in the same store that Michelangelo did, that Raphael did, every single other painter to come and go since 1348. I love that. 
this store also, because I went on their website immediately. I love these Imagine kind that of places. Founded in 1348, they've got a website. And not, well, of course they. <laughs> yeah, but still, true. but still. That's true. They, they go with the, they change with the time. The About Us page runs for like, you know, 37 <laughs> screens. <laughs> <laughs> then in the 14th century, then in the 15th century. Well, recently what they did was set up a kind of a contract where they, where they will find, review, and reproduce all the color and materials used by pre-Renaissance and Renaissance painters. Right. I find that amazing. It's similar, not quite as old, but similar to the art store at the Academia de Bella Arte in... Uh, Milano, mm-hmm. where I bought you those watercolor brushes. I Tintorento watercolor yes. brushes and that beautiful Tintoretto. Tintorento. No, with... and Tintoretto. Tintoretto. <laughs> anyway, that's re- they're beautiful brushes. They Kalinsky are. sable in this beautiful traveling box, and, and all the art students throughout history in Milan have been in that same store. Well, there we go. I love it. I love it. Anyway, to carry on with uh, Lolita and Frank's favorite day, then they would stroll over the river to Santo Spiritu for lunch at Osteria delle Nonno. That's the grandfather. Sweet little local place on the other side of the river. Then they walk off their lunch by walking past Piazzale Michelangelo, which is an outdoor elevated piazza where there's a replica of Michelangelo's David. And they keep going and they walk up to a medieval abbey built in the 11th century. So like you would say, let's say it was now 2021, that would be 1021, a thousand years ago, Mm. this abbey. They walk up there and it is called San Miniato al Monte. It's higher than the Michelangelo Plaza. So the view of the Davide replica, the Piazzale and all of Firenze is behind she said it's magnificent. We've been to Piazzale Michelangelo, but we did not go back up there. I did not know of it. Next trip. Next trip. We're going. So then they walk back, and after a little riposo, which means a rest in their apartment, they walk to dinner at Trattoria Antico Fattore, where everyone, she stressed, should have the Bisteca Fiorentina, mm-hmm. which I think is probably Florence's most popular dish, mm-hmm. most well-known. Mm-hmm. But the number one rule, you can only eat it with Chianti. Mm-hmm. No ifs, ands, or buts about that. Chianti, it is. And finally, Frank and Lolita's favorite month, they told us, is December. There are the least amount of tourists, and they said it feels like it must have hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Everyone loves Christmas there, obviously, celebrating the birth of Jesus. It's decorated, it's festive, and there's no tourist. Sounds perfecto. See? See. So, many more details to come in our second episode on Firenze with suggestions of what areas to stay in, how to see everything as easily as possible, how to avoid the crowds, and what to eat and drink. So thank you all again for listening. We really appreciate the emails, compliments, feedback. It's all been fantastico. Please give us a review or a rating if you can. And ci vediamo. See you next time. Ciao, ciao. 